The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Clearing the Way for Pediatric Patients of All Races with Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis, Expert Perspectives on Identifying and Assessing Disease Severity and Implementing Targeted Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash ZTQ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Amy Paller from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. I welcome you to this educational activity on improving care for children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Let's start by reviewing our goals for today. First, we'll talk about diagnosing atopic dermatitis and evaluating disease severity in children, taking into consideration age and race-related features. We'll discuss collaboration with other specialists in the management of pediatric patients with atopic dermatitis and as children transition to adult care. We will summarize the rationale and recent clinical evidence for the use of targeted therapy in appropriate pediatric patients with atopic dermatitis. And finally, we'll develop treatment plans for pediatric patients with AD, including the use of targeted therapy according to the latest clinical evidence. There are about 9.6 million children in the United States who are younger than 18 years of age and have atopic dermatitis. About one-third of these have moderate to severe disease. In addition, adults can be affected, with 16.5 million adults in the United States affected by atopic dermatitis, representing about 7.3% of the population. While many of these adults had their disease begin during infancy with persistence, Adults can also have their disease start during later childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and even at 60 years of age or greater. Overall, nearly 40% are affected by moderate to severe disease. The disease course of atopic dermatitis is commonly chronic in adults, and although it can be chronic, tends to be more often relapsing and remitting in children. The burden of signs and symptoms can be profound, adversely impacting quality of life. Among these are depression, anxiety, sleep disturbance, and other atopic conditions as frequent comorbidities. Atopic dermatitis was postulated many years ago to be the first manifestation of the atopic march, often preceding the later development of food allergies, asthma, and allergic rhinitis. We now know from longitudinal birth cohort studies that, in fact, this occurs for many patients who have atopic dermatitis, that it occurs first, and then other comorbidities may affect these individuals. However, it should be stated that these studies have also shown us that there are many children who never develop atopic dermatitis and yet develop these other forms of atopy. These suggest that the atopic march may be occurring, but certainly is not the pathway that is followed by all children who have allergic disorders. We know that the family history of atopic disease is important as a predictor. With one parent having atopic disease raising the risk of developing atopic dermatitis by 1.5-fold, and if both parents have atopic disease, that risk goes up to three to five-fold. Overall, up to 70% of patients with atopic dermatitis have a family history of atopic disease. Now, this is often starting in infancy, 
But I want to note that the distribution of atopic dermatitis can be variable by age. In infants, we often see a lot of involvement on the face, particularly the cheeks and chin, as well as the scalp and ears. It is more the extensor extremities than the flexural extremities that are affected, and it's not uncommon to have overlapping seborrheic dermatitis, particularly of the scalp. By later in childhood, let's say two years of age and beyond, we can still see a fair amount of involvement on the face, but the atopic dermatitis tends to be localized more to the adult pattern of flexural extremity distribution. By teenage years and adulthood, the flexural extremities may be the only place, and there's a lot more involvement on the hands and the dorsal aspects of the feet. Now, these are generalities, and it should be noted that I see many patients who even in infancy will show that flexural pattern. But these are guidelines that have raised questions about why the distribution can be different at these various ages. One of the reasons we think that we see so much involvement on the face in infants is because of the effect of saliva and new foods contacting the face at a time when the skin barrier is not fully developed because the cheeks are the area at which the skin barrier and the increase in filaggrin is seen last. Diagnostic features of atopic dermatitis are well-defined. Essential features include paritis or itch and eczema, whether acute, subacute, or chronic in its morphology, but having a typical eczematous morphology, and then to some extent these age-specific patterns I just mentioned. In addition, having a chronic or relapsing history is characteristics. Sparing of the groin is another characteristic of infancy that can give a clue when you peek under the diaper area and don't see involvement there that is in many other sites. Other important features seen in most cases and adding to the diagnosis are early age of onset, having a personal and or family history of atopy, IgE reactivity, and of course that characteristic xerotic or dry skin. There's a long list of associated features that are not specific for atopic dermatitis, but can help if present to suggest the diagnosis and also can help in defining or detecting AD for research or epidemiologic studies. These include atypical vascular responses, keratosis pilaris, pityriasis alba, hyperlinear palms or clear presence of ichthyosis vulgaris, ocular or periorbital changes, other regional finding, for example, perioral changes or periauricular lesions, and then perifollicular accentuation, lichenification, perigo lesions, often seen in patients with greater chronicity. Here you can see some pictures of atopic dermatitis in patients with lighter skin. The one on the left shows the typical popliteal flexural area involvement, and on the right shows characteristics of oozing, crusting, and excoriation at a site with lichenification. In darker skin, atopic dermatitis may not be as easy to recognize because the erythema can be obscured by the darker pigmentation. However, in these individuals, we tend to see more of a follicular or papular appearance to the lesions, oftentimes more numular or coin-shaped morphology, prominent lichenification, 
and evidence of dispigmentation, both hypopigmentation and hyperpigmentation. Mild atopic dermatitis shows pink skin, sometimes with associated hyperpigmentation or hypopigmentation, often the leftovers of the eczema or treatment, does not tend to show crusting or oozing, and the skin is minimally thickened or swollen. When we get to moderate atopic dermatitis, the skin is more erythematous, clearly swollen, raised, or thickened, and may be associated with mild oozing or crusting. By the time we get to severe atopic dermatitis, the skin tends to be a bright or deep red color. It is more swollen, raised, or thickened compared to other severities. Oozing and crusting is not uncommonly present. And to be severe, often the rash is more widespread, not just localized to characteristic areas like the antecubital and popliteal folds. When we assess the severity of atopic dermatitis, we fortunately have several tools to consider that assessment. Commonly used in clinical trials, but often too tedious for office practice, is the EASY score, or Eczema, Area, and Severity Index. The POEM, or Patient-Oriented Eczema Measure, is one that has seven questions and is easily answered before the doctor comes into the room in a visit. Therefore, the patient or the parent can provide input, including unpatient reported outcomes like itch and sleep. The PO score is also a tool that can be filled out by patients, more complex but provides a bit more information. And then the score or the scoring atopic dermatitis itself without the PO, patient-oriented component, is one that can be filled out by the physician, but includes asking the patient about itch and sleep. Other tools that are frequently used are the Dermatitis Life Quality Index, or for children, the CDLQI, or for infants, there's also a Quality of Life Index for parents to fill out. These are critical for finding out what the impact of atopic dermatitis is on quality of life. Very important also is to ask specifically about itch. And there are itch numeric rating scales, particularly going from zero or none to 10 or severe, that allow one to assess peak itch or average itch. The Investigator Global Assessment, or IGA, is very commonly reported and is often the primary endpoint in trials. This is a physician-assessed measure that goes anywhere from zero or clear, but there can be some leftover post-inflammatory pigment change, to severe, in which there are marked changes as I previously recounted. For practical use, as noted, easy and scored measures are just too tedious for office practice, but are used in trials. In clinical practice, However, we often will assess the investigator global assessment, a quick estimate of the body surface area, and will multiply those two factors to get an IgA cross BSA score that is very similar to the results of the easy score in terms of an accurate physician-assessed measurement that is quick and easy to do. I often like to ask as well about itch and sleep as well as the impact on quality of life during any clinic visit. The sleep burden is 
often significant for patients and families, even in those with mild disease. Here you can see that whether we're talking about difficulty falling asleep, early morning awakening, or the odds of having nightmares, we see more involvement in those patients with atopic dermatitis, even without asthma or allergic rhinitis, particularly if there's more severe atopic dermatitis. I consider this a call to action and think pediatricians should consider screening all children with atopic dermatitis for sleep disturbances, even if their disease is mild or no longer active. I do want to emphasize as well that we can see sleep disturbances with other forms of atopy, whether we're talking about nasal obstruction with allergic rhinitis or asthma. There's a family impact of atopic dermatitis that can be quite severe. These are results from a study called EpiCare, an international cross-sectional web-based survey of about 1,500 caregivers of children aged six months to less than six years of age with atopic dermatitis. Using the Dermatitis Family Index score of greater than 10, which represents moderate to high alteration in quality of life, 42.1% among children who had mild atopic dermatitis had this impact on the family quality of life. Of course, it went up thereafter with about 59% having this poor quality of life in the family with moderate atopic dermatitis and 78% with severe atopic dermatitis. I also want to stress the importance of multidisciplinary care and think with you about when is it time to refer. Children with severe atopic dermatitis often require systemic medication. Even children with moderate disease who are not improving with standard therapy really need systemic intervention. And that is best done by a pediatric specialist in dermatology or allergy immunology. Don't think that you can find some treatment that's going to suddenly start working or even worse, not intervene with systemic medication because of a belief that the child will outgrow the atopic dermatitis. Many, many children, and particularly with moderate to severe disease, do not outgrow their disease. And with the armamentarium that we now have to treat moderate to severe atopic dermatitis that does not involve immunosuppressants, there is absolutely no reason not to get a child to a specialist to initiate care that is life-altering for so many when they are suffering daily by the itch, poor sleep, and impact on quality of life of this disease. Now let's take a look at a mother and her daughter who has atopic dermatitis to understand disease burden. But we noticed... um markings on her skin as early as eight months old. Um, She's our second child and our oldest did not have that issue. And so I wasn't really sure what I was looking at. Um, Where we are in our area, um, providers aren't um, very open to seeing infants around here. And so I was just redirected over and over to our pediatrician. And I mean, obviously with not really knowing what we were dealing with, the impact 
was across the board, right? Because as her mom, I'm wanting to find all the answers. You know, her dad, I'm sitting, we're trying to, what is this? What's going on? What are we dealing with? And then all the while you have this infant that's, you know, crying and scratching and has open skin and bleeding and things like that. Yeah, we've had um, sleep issues. She and I are still good friends at night, Um, you know, (laughs) and a lot of that, you know, started, a lot of that co-sleeping started just from simply having to hold her hands down um, to keep her from scratching. Um, And that's a fight in itself, right? Because if she's not sleep, if she's scratching in her sleep, I'm not sleeping because I'm keeping her from scratching. Uh, I don't, honestly, I don't think we got a a true full night um, till well into year four or five. Uh, I remember, like, I just used to scratch a lot and, like, get really irritated because uh, she used to tape up my hands and stuff at, like, night and stuff so I wouldn't scratch. And, like, I'd find a way to, like, get inside and, like, scratch like crazy. And it always annoys me and it always keeps me up from sleeping. Your first point of contact is their primary care. Um, And her primary care physician at the time was her pediatrician. Um, I didn't have an allergist or a dermatologist in our area that was prepared to see her because she wasn't over the age of two. They, um, we went to the appointment. Um, Her pediatrician said, Oh, yeah, I mean, that's eczema. Look, I've got it right here. Um, Here's your tube of steroid. Apply it for seven days and you'll be good to go. And Um, We got home and uh, picked up the prescription. We get home and I'm reading it and it says, you know, not to be used on persons under 18. And I was sort of like, um, I mean, she's, (laughs) she's at this point, you know, 10, 12 months old. And I'm just like, wait a minute. I don't know that this is right. But again, you're supposed to trust your provider. We applied for seven to 10 days per the instructions. It cleared up uh, to what we thought, you know, was clear. Um, only to then turn around and almost um, double what it was before. So then you go back um, and then they say, well, you can't get a stronger because of her age and you can't apply it for longer because of the um, effects of the steroid. As you've heard, atopic dermatitis has a significant impact on patients and their families. Now let's turn to the next part of our program, on understanding atopic dermatitis and its underlying basis, as well as targeted biologic therapies that are available for treating pediatric patients. Now, before we get into some of the newer available treatment options, I want to talk a little bit about the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. It's become clear in the last decade or two that this is very much an immune-driven disease in which the itch and scratching perpetuate disease, and in which other factors like the skin barrier and the microbiome also influence that inflammation through an interplay of all of these various factors. This is primarily a type 2 inflammatory disease, and that means that interleukin-4 and particularly interleukin-13 are mediators of the inflammation. And interleukin-31 
also a Th2 cytokine, is an itch-specific mediator that also can be affected by this process of skin inflammation initiated because of environmental triggers through this poor barrier of skin and exacerbated by factors including the increase of staph aureus on the skin. Of course, we start by applying topical corticosteroids of medium to high potency twice daily for at least two weeks. And then if we have a good response, we can taper down to maybe once daily for a week or even two to three times weekly for hot spots, keeping them under control in those who have disease with recurrence when the topical anti-inflammatory medication is stopped. Even when these areas, and particularly when these areas are clear or almost clear, we continue to use the topical corticosteroid of this strength as proactive management as it's been shown that just applying two to three times per week once daily will not lead to topical corticosteroid toxicity. And yet for many children, when applied to these hotspots, will allow maintenance of control. One can also consider just dialing down after getting it under control with a medium to high potent steroid to a lower potent steroid, perhaps one of the non-halogenated steroids that are just above hydrocortisone in terms of potency. One can also consider use particularly for sensitive areas or as a more frequently applied maintenance of some of the newer non-steroidal agents. These include most commonly the topical calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus and permicrolimus, which have now been around for more than 20 years and have clearly been shown in numerous long-term clinical trials that there is no evidence of increased risk of malignancy, including lymphoma or non-melanoma skin cancer. The theoretical concerns that led to the boxed warning a few decades ago of the use of the topical calcineurin inhibitors. More recently, chrysoboral, a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, became available for atopic dermatitis, and others are in development. Most recently, topical ruxolitinib has become available for those who are 12 years of age and older and has been in trials for children who are younger. That one agent is restricted to 20% body surface area for treatment of atopic dermatitis. I also frequently will institute bleach baths to get patients under control who have moderate to severe disease. These bleach baths originally were thought to be valuable to reduce bacteria primarily, but likely are of such a low concentration of bleach that they act more on the barrier and on reducing inflammation primarily and then secondarily on the organisms which has been shown by a recent study. These bleach baths can be uncomfortable for patients who have open areas and secondary infection. So I always treat with an oral antibiotic if that is the case and wait for several days until healing has occurred with the good topical regimen and the oral antibiotic for infection before I start these very dilute bleach baths. Now, if a patient is using this approach And despite this use, 
as well as adherence to the regimen, then we need to consider moving on to systemic medication. Now, I can't stress enough the need to adhere to a regimen. And I'll talk about this in a little bit more, but I'm emphasizing that you cannot assume that what you suggested was actually used by the family. So it's critical to review this. Now, here we have a little more information about the topical pelsinurin inhibitors, which are, again, the most commonly used agents for steroid sparing. This is particularly important in sensitive areas like the face or the genital region, but these agents have proven to be very safe. And honestly, if one has to use them even twice a day, even in these sensitive areas, there have not been associated problems other than an increased risk for burning, stinging, or a feeling of heat, which can be obviated by starting with a topical steroid, bringing down the inflammation, and then using as maintenance if somebody is sensitive in this way to them. Another trick is to put the medication in the refrigerator and use it cold to decrease the sensation of increased heat or burning. Here's an algorithm that shows you the steps that we consider before moving to systemic therapy. As mentioned, we want to consider whether the therapy has been adhered to and explore with the family whether they've in fact been using the therapy consistently or as often happens, used it for a few weeks after the visit, tapered off, and then to please the doctor, started using it again in the week or two before the visit, which may not be sufficient. There may be problems with the vehicle and the child rejecting it. There may be problems with the work schedule, for example, of the parents, that they can't adhere to the schedule that you have proposed. All of these need to be explored to make sure that whatever we prescribe is feasible for that particular family and that particular patient. Also, we need to consider alternative diagnoses in case we miss something. And I mentioned this before, but has infection been treated? Is there a possible contact allergy to something being put on the skin, whether that is an emollient with widespread application, or even the topical steroid itself. It's not the topical steroid usually, it can be, but more often it is something in a vehicle. And it can even be in the vehicle, for example, of a soap that's used or another agent that the patient is using and comes in contact. If you've gotten past all of these various aspects, then it's time to consider advancing to systemic therapy. I will remind about the long-term available treatment of narrowband ultraviolet B light. Now, the issue with this is if the patient is too inflamed, it's not going to be tolerated. But really, mostly the issue is that one has to come two to three times a week to a center that has narrowband UVB, even initially before one can get a home unit. And this is often not an option for the busy family that has to work. And on top of that, the child who has all of these after-school activities. So then we need to think with the family about systemic agents. And the first line agent currently is a biologic called dupilumab. Dupilumab works as an anti-interleukin-4 receptor medication 
it's got indications other than moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, for which it's now approved down to six months of age, including severe asthma, age six and above, and chronic rhinosinusitis uh, with nasal polyps, nodularis for adults, and for those 12 years of age and older, eosinophilic esophagitis. The way that this agent works is by blocking the anti-interleukin-4 receptor in such a way that it prevents the signaling through a heterodimeric receptor that includes the binding site, the receptor for interleukin-4, and the receptor 1 for interleukin-13. That is exactly the pathway that is affected in atopic dermatitis. I want to show you the study results of dupilumab in patients 6 to 12 years of age. This was a study in which patients had to have atopic dermatitis inadequately controlled by topical therapies and severe atopic dermatitis with a weekly average of daily peak itch of at least 4 out of 10 and at least 15% body surface area involved. This group was stratified based on body weight to those who are under 30 kilograms and those who are at least 30 kilograms in weight. These patients were randomized one to one to one to receive either placebo or subcutaneous dupilumab 300 milligrams every four weeks or dupilumab subcutaneously every two weeks with weight-based dosing and 100 milligrams every two weeks for those under 30 kilos and 200 milligrams every two weeks for those who are 30 kilograms or above. I should note that in this study, it was not monotherapy. Patients were allowed to use topical corticosteroids of low strength and escalate that if needed for rescue. This therapy was given for 16 weeks, and then there was an open labral extension or safety follow-up for all patients. As you can see in the overall population, there was a wide difference between those on dupilumab and those who are on placebo in terms of the proportion of patients achieving the easy 75, that is at least a 75% reduction in the eczema area and severity index between baseline and 16 weeks. If we look at those who are under 30 kilograms, we can see that again, we see that wide separation, but that the results were somewhat better in those who are getting the medication every four weeks. On the other hand, if you look on the right-hand graph of those who were at least 30 kilograms, we don't see that same separation. And in fact, these patients did a little bit better with the 200 or 100 milligram every two weeks. And this is why it moved forward to these particular recommendations with different weights having a different recommendation of every four, 300 versus the weight-based dosing every two weeks for those who were 30 kilograms or above. From the standpoint of safety, there were no red flags. There was nothing that was new. The most common adverse events were injection site reactions and then eye manifestations. In this particular study, there were patients who got oral herpes, but we really didn't see any other issues with herpes, including herpes that was more widespread or the so-called eczema herpeticum. 
Long-term studies have also been performed in this patient population. And what you can see is that going out to a full year, if anything, there may be a slight increase in the percentage of patients who are able to achieve clear or almost clear disease, which is about the equivalent of a 90% reduction in the eczema area and severity index achieved here by about 44% of patients. And if we look at the mean percent change in the easy score, that overall was down by 86%. So excellent results and even evidence that even better results are seen past the 16 week of the studies. Now we're going to go down to talk about the Liberty AD preschool study, which was the one that was done in those who were six months to less than six years of age. This was a very similar design, except that here during the 16 weeks, we had weight-based dosing every four weeks with those who were at least five kilograms, but under 15 kilograms, getting 200 milligrams every four weeks, and those who were at least 15 kilograms to under 30 kilograms, getting that dosing that proved best in the older child study, that is 300 milligrams every four weeks. Once again, this was a study that allowed the use of topical corticosteroids and had a follow-up period. As you can see here, the patients who were on dupilumab had a clear separation by 16 weeks. And really, as with all the studies, a much earlier clear separation here showing statistically different results by four weeks in terms of the proportion of patients who were able to achieve that clear or almost clear status, again, about equivalent to a 90% reduction in easy score. And you can see on the right, the proportion of patients with easy 75, that is a 75% reduction, which is considered an excellent clinical result. Here showing that separation by two weeks out, and of course, a marked separation by the end of the 16-week period in this group. Now, if we look here at the mean percentage change in easy score, we can similarly see a reduction by about 70% in those on the dupilumab and only about 20% in those on placebo. If we look on the right at the itch numeric rating score and its reduction in terms of percent, we can see a reduction by almost 50% in that itch score, which has such an impact on quality of life. Now, dupilumab is out, is exciting, is our first-line treatment right now down to six months of age, but it's not going to be the only one. And we have two other biologics that will soon be on the market that also affect that type 2 immune pathway and that same receptor. One of these is called trelokinumab. It is an anti-interleukin-13 monoclonal antibody binding to the cytokine itself. It's been approved in Europe and the UK in June 2021 for the treatment in adults. And it's been approved in December 2021 for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in adults. Recently, it was approved for adolescents in Europe, but it has not yet been approved here in the United States. This has the same kind of a safety profile as we have seen in the dupilumab with only the conjunctivitis 
being of anything of note. And it's not really clear whether just targeting to the interleukin-13 has a little less issue with this ocular surface disease or not, but just as in dupilumab, it's seen in the minority of patients. Here you can see the results of trials with two doses of trilokinumab, again, separating out fairly early on between those treated with the active trilokinumab and the placebo, and certainly that clear separation by 16 weeks. We can see an easy 75 response. If you look at the numbers, you can see that this is a little less in terms of response than what we saw in the dupilumab, but now we'll see in real life experience as this comes out on the market ultimately in the United States, whether it is less effective than dupilumab or not. Ongoing studies are now looking at monotherapy in children 2 to less than 12 years of age for trilokinumab. The other agent that's a biologic on this pathway that should be coming soon is lebricizumab. It also targets the interleukin-13 cytokine, although by a somewhat different mechanism from trilokinumab's targeting of the interleukin-13 in that it binds to the interleukin-13 in such a way that it prevents its binding to the receptor. Here we have a study in which there were adolescents with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in addition to adults. And as you can see, with the lebricizumab, looking at those who had clear or almost clear involvement, as shown in the graph on the left, there's a clear separation. And we also see this with the EZ75. Now, in this particular study, there was a pretty good placebo effect, but nevertheless, clearly showed the separation. Lebricizumab now has ongoing studies in the six-month to less than 18-year age group. I do want to mention nemolizumab. This is an agent that targets interleukin-31 receptor, and interleukin-31 is the anti-itch cytokine. This agent is already available, including for adolescents in Japan, but is not yet available in Europe or in the United States. The studies have largely focused on the action against itch, here showing you the reduction on the left in the itch score, the visual analog scale of 0 to 10, uh, at 16 weeks, which was much better with the nemalizumab than with the placebo. And you can see that also on the bottom left, that this really separated out even in the first two days as you follow this during the first two weeks of use. When we look at the change in easy score, not as effective as what we're seeing with the other agents that I showed you. And so when we're looking at these various severity scores on the right, I think we do have to be careful to realize that this is an agent that really impacts and impacts early the itch, but in itself has less of an effect on the inflammation and must be used with topical corticosteroids. There are ongoing phase three studies now in adolescents, as well as a phase two study in older children for this injectable agent. Let's move on to talk about practical strategies for initiating this targeted treatment, and I'll present a patient case of Emma, six years of age. Emma presents with her parents for evaluation of severe redness, 
oozing, and crusting of her skin, along with severe itch. They say that it has progressively gotten worse since her symptoms began at about three years of age. Her sleep quality is also affected, and her mother reports that the bedsheets are sometimes bloody from Emma scratching at night. Her parents also worry about her mental health. She's become reluctant to go to school and spend time with friends. When we examine her, we see red scaling lesions on Emma's neck, torso, arms, and leg, overall affecting more than one-third of her body surface area. Her parents say that she used topical corticosteroids and initially responded well when she started those more than a year ago, but they were really apprehensive about long-term topical corticosteroid use, so she was switched to a topical calcineurin inhibitor. She initially responded for about four months and then has lost control of any of these agents. She's now doing more itching and scratching, and the sleep disturbances and mental health have become unbearable for her. At this point, we talk about adherence. It was very clear that the parents were adhering well to the previous therapies. We think about other potential disorders that may be on top of the atopic dermatitis or alternative, and really doesn't seem to be anything else going on. She's also not infected. So we talk about the potential for advancing to phototherapy, which the parents don't think is really feasible, or systemic therapy. We talk about first-line therapy being the biologic therapy, but Emma, of course, is apprehensive because of the injections involved. So really our job is to discuss ways that this can actually be managed when the child is fearful of injections. We can talk about distraction, be that audio, visual, or both, one of the most important means to try to get a child through having their injection. And we can also talk about the fact that we absolutely do not recommend having a child lie down for an injection. That will automatically provoke anxiety. Instead, we recommend having the child sit on the caregiver's lap while another person injects and the parent holds the child on the lap in a bear hug position. We encourage everyone to model calmness, including in the speech to the child. And consider using devices near the injection site that cause a sensation, whether that be a sensation of pressure or a sensation of vibration. And this can be done before and during the injection, although it has no value once the injection is completed. We also encourage the family to focus on the health benefits and not on the pain of injections, because it is so clear that for the majority of children, these biologics can be quite helpful and life-altering, whereas the injection is just a short period, often just every four weeks. We talk about the choice of pen versus syringe, but largely use the syringe for these younger children because it is less painful. After about 12 weeks on dupilumab, the parents have noticed significant improvement in the itch, the appearance of Emma's skin, and the quality of her sleep. She's gone back to school without any complaints, and she's spending time with her friends. Let's go back to the mother and daughter featured earlier as they discuss their experiences with treatment. 
we, we started with obviously the topicals, just the steroids. Um, and we tried different versions of that. Um, some of them did burn. Um, she, you know, just didn't like the routine of it, you know, the bathing, then the lotion, then the wrapping, then the, the different things, obviously. I mean, she was still a toddler, right? She wanted to, she wanted to run and go and that was hard to do with her hands taped up. The compound that she was on, we did finally find that at around eight, right before she turned four. Um, so, or actually right before she turned three, we found that. And that was just, a, again, just a topical that we could apply. Um, we did have, I would say minimal success with that in to the extent that it closed some of that open weeping skin. Um, but it never a hundred percent cleared her up, uh, all the way. She still had heavily affected areas. It wasn't until, um, let's see, probably three years ago, maybe right after COVID and things were reopening, um, that I found an allergist in Dallas, which is about three hours from us, that was willing to start talking about other things um, in addition to continuing to use her compounds. Because I I felt that we had success with that. So I wanted to keep that in her routine. Um, it was at that appointment that the provider talked about introducing the biologic in addition to and clearing up some of those more difficult spots. I do not like shots, but I just decided to try it out. Um, it hurt very bad. And I'm like, well, if it's going to help me, then I might as well just keep on doing it. So... But we were, we were all there together. You know, dad was holding the hand and kind of talking her through and we're just saying, you know, just breathe, just breathe. It's okay. And, you know, trying really again, sort of celebrating her and how, and her bravery and sort of overcoming that needle fear and, and trying to, to understand if this might help me, then it's worth it. We've only had like four mm -hmm. four shots now but I mean after like I took my two shots like I haven't really been scratching mm -hmm. that much I mean I scratched like a tiny bit but not that much than I did before yeah we've, we've definitely noticed the the just sort of I call it like mindless itching uh mindless scratching has really reduced like nighttime scratching has reduced so that to us you know and we again that was something that we had talked about with her provider yes we were getting her skin clear with the compound but sh it was it was still not touching that sort of internal itch that she's always described of as you know it literally feels like bugs crawling on my bones you know and so just that itch that you cannot get to but it's always there You know, the National Eczema Association is going to be, you know, your best go-to. Uh, Global Parents for Eczema Research, they are doing a lot of wonderful things. Um, we have, you know, international friends, you know, that we talk to and, and sort of 
get envious of sometimes because maybe they have access to, to newer things that are coming down the pipeline, but they're still keeping us updated. And so, you know, even just simple social media has been really important to us um, and connecting her, right, with with other kids who are, you know, going through the same things. I think, especially on an initial visit, I think just coming in with that mindset of this parent is probably already exhausted all other um, like emotional expenditures at that point, if it makes sense. And the last thing they need is someone to just say, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's yeah, it's eczema or it's atopic dermatitis. Here's your steroid. Like at that point, I really just needed someone to confirm for me that I wasn't blowing this out of proportion, right? That just because she wasn't covered head to toe, that it was still detrimental to to our daily living. You know, I love, love, love a patient portal. Like that has been like life changing for us, finding providers that use patient portals and I can just send a quick message, you know, and, and someone can get back to me. Let's talk a little bit about transitioning from pediatric to adult care. Only 40% of children with special health care needs aged 12 to 17 years receive the services necessary to make the transition to adult care. It's important to consider questioning to assess readiness in this age group. Do you know your medications and how to take them? Do you know how to refill your medications? Do you know how to discuss them? Can you discuss your medical condition with the adult doctor? And can you call for a doctor's appointment or get a prescription filled? It is critical to teach children as early on as possible how to be their own health care advocate. So in summary, atopic dermatitis presents differently among children versus adults and among lighter skin versus darker skin. The family history of atopic disease may raise the risk of having a child with atopic dermatitis. Knowing when to refer pediatric patients to specialty care and collaborating with specialists is crucial, including during the transition from pediatric to adult care. Patient or caregiver education is critical in making a shared treatment decision, particularly when stepping up from moderate to severe AD treatment with use of systemic medications and when managing patient concerns. Targeted biologic therapy with dupilumab has been proven safe and effective for patients as young as six months of age with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Other targeted agents are in development for pediatric and or adolescent populations. These include trilokinumab, lebrachizumab, and nemolizumab. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you found this program to be useful as you continue to care for pediatric patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the National Eczema Association. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZTQ 860.
This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.